All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, numbers for inflation are back out again and it's up to 9.1%. At least that's what the government's telling us. Now, of course, Joe Biden and Robert Reich, they all say this is this isn't an accurate reflection of what's really going on in the economy because you shouldn't be like paying attention to your grocery bill or your gas bill. No, no, you should just be listening to the uh, economic and political experts. But here's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to explain why Inflation is actually higher than what they're telling you it is and how they get away with manipulating the numbers. And this is really important because as time goes on, you're going to see a lot of really bad yet seemingly convincing arguments for why a recession isn't a bad thing or an inflation isn't a bad thing or what the real causes of our inflation. And, and you know, hint, it's the private sector, not government and bureaucrats manipulating the economy. We're going to explain all of that on more on this episode of Making the Argument. If you listen to this episode and are more equipped to make the argument for what it is you believe, I hope you'll let us know in the YouTube comment section and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks so much for listening. All right. I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a pretty good person. And with us is my beautiful wife, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. As well as our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And then, of course, producer of producer, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you, Nick. Okay, so uh, inflation numbers came out again, and uh, lo and behold, they're they're higher. Apparently, when they talked about inflation being transitory, they only meant in one direction. Um, <laughs> we so, should tweet that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it came out, and look, this is not a laughing matter. All of us are mad about this. Like, I went to the I went to the grocery store the other day and came home with relatively few items, and I was like, you. How is this a hundred bucks? Like, how is this a hundred dollars for something that, you know, last year when it had been, you know, a, a fraction of that. Mm -hmm. So we all know what's going up and we, we have all of our, you know, it's gotten to a point so bad where they used to try to convince us it wasn't happening or it wasn't as bad as everyone was saying it was. Now they realize, okay, no, it's, it, it's bad and we can't hide it, but we've got our good friend, Robert Reich and Robert, who used to work for the Carter administration. <laughs> Uh oh. All right, and this is a guy that knows something about inflation when it comes to, you know, oh, yeah. increasing Creating it. it. Yeah. Um, and he was also the Secretary of Labor under the Clinton administration. So he is just, you know, burst back onto the scene and he's every Keynesian's, like, you know, dream of, oh, this is the guy that's going to really be able to explain economics. But, you know, he was a Secretary of Labor and he's a professor. And uh, yeah, this is this is a guy, he's going to be able to explain it to everybody. So he came out with this, um, this video that he did. And we're going to read off some of the stuff from the script. But he starts off with inflation, inflation. Everyone's talking about it, but ignoring one of its biggest causes, corporate concentration. And then he goes on. Now, prices are undeniably rising. In response, the Fed is about to slow the economy. 
I, I love how it's the Fed just is up there like, I, I don't know, managing the economy. And it's like, oh, this is the lever to tighten it and this is the lever to speed it up. But even though we're still at least 4 million jobs short of where we were before the pandemic and millions of American workers won't get the raises they deserve. Republicans haven't wasted any time hammering Biden and Democratic lawmakers about inflation. Everybody is ignoring the deeper structural reason for price increases, the concentration of the American economy into the hands of a few corporate giants with the power to raise prices. All right. So he goes on in this article and you can look at it if you want. It's over at inequalitymedia.org. I mean, if you want to punish yourself with really bad reasoning, you can, you can go through and look at this. But essentially, his, his overall argument is that it's starting in the 1980s, early 1980s, we stopped enforcing antitrust law, which antitrust law was basically fighting against any particular company achieving a monopoly, right? These are antitrust laws came about in the early 20th century. And that sounds good until you figure out that it's actually a way for the government to manipulate the economy and um, to kind of pressure larger corporations to spend more money on lobbyists. <laughs> um, but... His argument is, is that because um, you have a few like major conglomerates that run a lot of different industries and, and things like that, that's what's actually causing inflation. Now, there's two problems with this. We've discussed this before. One, inflation is not just prices going up, right? That's not just what inflate. There's a lot of reasons why prices can go up. Inflation is specifically, we're, we're not just talking about prices, we're also talking about the monetary policy. We're talking about more currency, more money going into um, the economy. So go ahead and go ahead and switch over to this inflation definition. This comes from comes from Investopedia, <clears throat> and it says inflation is a decline of the purchasing power of a given currency over time. A quantitative assessment of that rate at which the decline of purchasing power occurs can be reflected in the increase of an average price level of a basket of selected goods and services in an economy over some period of time. Here's what that means, right? Everything that you bought last year was cheaper than what you're, you're paying for it right now. Why is that? Is it because there's been, you know, massive shortages with respect to supply across the globe? Okay, well, that could be a reason for, in, in, for rising prices. But inflation specifically, right, as articulated by Milton Freeman and others, tends to be a monetary phenomenon. And what that means is when the government just starts printing a bunch more money, okay, the individual value of each dollar that they're printing goes down as a result of them arbitrarily printing more dollars. Right? That's what is causing inflation and the general increase in, and rise in prices across the board. Now, are there other things that are also contributing to rising prices? Yes. When you have a lot of regulations or taxes or restrictions on productivity, that will also cause prices to rise. But when you're doing that in conjunction with printing a bunch of fiat currency, which is just paper money that's not tied to anything, right? That is also going to cause a general increase. So when we're talking about inflation, we have to include that. He's trying, Robert Reich is trying to make you believe that this is all just a, a couple of, you know, corporations got together and just decided we're going to be, let's be super greedy and increase prices because no one can stop us. Okay, then why didn't they do it like five years ago or 10 years ago? Why were prices increasing? You know, wh why can it? It's because it doesn't actually explain it. But what it does do is it provides top cover for these politicians that believe that they should be the ones managing the economy. And so any excuse which gives them more power, they're happy with that excuse. So it's not to say that, it's not to say that you, you uh, couldn't see problems or rising costs as, as you know, monopolies and whatnot um, take control. But what he's failing to also explain even on that side of the argument is that typically the only way a corporation or a private entity can achieve monopoly is with government assistance, right? And 
Every single left-wing government that has tried to crack down on rampant capitalism, they've typically done it through cartelization, which they've been more involved in the economy, and people haven't ended up with more options that a free market generally produces. They've ended up with fewer options because the barrier to entry into the marketplace goes up significantly when you have to fork out millions of dollars on lawyers, on lobbyists, and everything else in order to try to navigate regulatory and tax environments in order to survive. You think that benefits the smaller company? No, it benefits the larger companies. So Robert Reich helped create the very problem that he's now blaming for something that doesn't even properly explain the problem he's trying to explain. I want to back up real quick. <laughs> you used a word that I don't think a lot of people are going to understand. Can you break, can you explain what cartelization is? So the, the cartelization is essentially when you set up cartels. So you, you saw this a lot with FDR. You saw it a lot in other economies over in Europe in the early 20th century. It was the idea that we're going to rein in this unfettered capitalism within the marketplace. And so we're going to get, usually it was like the largest producers within a particular industry, and we're going to set up cartels, and they're going to have to agree to operate within certain government-established boundaries. So that could have been you know, guidelines with respect to production. It could have been guidelines with respect to hiring or wages. It could have been guidelines with respect to geography. But essentially, if you operated within the cartel, the government would provide some protection with respect to, you know, tax subsidization or protection from outside competition because this was your little area that you were allowed to function in and nobody could compete with you within that area as long as you were doing what the government said to do. Kind of like organized crime. A little bit, a little bit. So, Two main points, two main takeaways here, and I hope I haven't gone down too many rabbit holes. One, not only is Robert Reich wrong about what is actually causing inflation right now, because he's completely ignoring the monetary component here, he's actually wrong about the solution as well because he's always advocating for more government power and control within the economy. And the reason why we have a lot of these um, corporations is not simply because it makes sense within a free market in order to consolidate like leadership or whatnot of a particular organization. We have a lot of it because the government provides, the government creates a regulatory um, burden which causes a barrier to entry. It makes it more difficult to be involved in running companies and producing, uh, providing products and services. And the more regulations, the more rules, the more requirements that a government puts on a business, the cost of doing business goes up. And what happens over time is that the businesses with the best lobbyists and the ones that are most able to manipulate the government sector. When? When they end up consolidating the smaller producers, because if you're a smaller producer and all of a sudden there's a tax increase or there's a regulatory increase, or the government comes in and does something like this. They say, if you're going to hire someone, you have to provide for their health care or you have to provide for, you know, so many weeks of paid leave, right? Or so many weeks of paid sick leave. Well, the smaller company goes, well, it's easier for me to just sell off to the big guy. So again, Robert Reich helped create the very thing that he's blaming for the problem right now. And he hasn't even properly diagnosed the problem, much less the cure for it. Well, even so far as like the USDA and just we have this shortage of of uh, meat packing plants. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know here in Virginia, it's a problem and um, you have to comply. You can't sell your own meat if you pack your own meat. You have to take it to a USDA approved uh, place, have it done, um, and then you could sell it. But it's it's interesting because... They have to go through so much rigorous, you know, regulatory uh, inspection and everything else. Uh, it's just cost prohibitive mm -hmm. 
for any smaller organization, smaller business to be able to provide for that need, which in turn causes meat prices to go up because of scarcity. Yeah. Well, so the thing that we need to jump into today, because th- this is <laughs> this is really important. So I wanted to mention Robert Reich because, again, it's the typical argument that you're going to see to try to explain why the government is not responsible for this and why it's a lack of government power that is creating this problem. And if, and if only people like Robert Reich had more power, we'd be better off. Here's what I find interesting. Again, inflation, 9.1%. They're saying it's the highest it's been since 1980. That is only kind of true. Um, Because Christian brought something up the other day that was really interesting. And that was how the government actually calculates inflation. Wait, let me guess. They're cooking the books. No. What? Tina, Not the government. You, I tell you what, you and your conspiracy theories. So oh my where's, where's my temple actually, hat? At the beginning of this podcast, I've I've been scrolling around on the internet reading um, a few things. And I actually. Well, if it's on the interwebs, we know it must be true. <laughs> well, I, it was it was shortly before we started recording. Um, I found a paper um, that was published by Larry Summers, of all people. Oh, wow. Um, and. I know it's actually kind of surprising, and and he he was talking about stuff that isn't that's only tangentially related to this. But um, one thing caught my eye, which was he was talking about the the gap um, uh, between the Fed fund rate and what the actual inflation rate is, and um, he ended up doing some of these calculations. And by the way, Larry Summers not an Austrian guy. No, no. Um, for, by that we mean not Austrian economics. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're he, more of an Austrian school. He was a Obama Clinton guy. Yeah. Um and. Uh, the math that he ran ended up determining that 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 gap between what the Fed fund rate or what the effective Fed fund rate is versus what the inflation rate is is actually currently, and this is this was back in like April when yeah. this paper was published, is actually currently almost thirteen percent. So that was what Larry Summers again, not not some like staunch conservative and free market advocate. This gap is important because the way that you you qual inflation, and this is something that that even even a complete moron like Paul Krugman would understand <laughs> that the way that you quench inflation, one of the ways that you can quench inflation is um, you have to have the Fed fund rate. You have to have interest rates higher than what the inflation rate is mm-hmm. um, because then it'll encourage savings um, and it'll pull money out of the marketplace. Um, so if that gap between what the inflation rate is and what the Fed fund rate is, is actually closer to 13%. And this is back in April. Yeah. And we now know that the Fed has been raising rates since then, but inflation has also been rising even more since then. I mean, even if the Fed fund rate has been rising faster than inflation but hasn't yet eclipsed it, you're still looking at, like, in order to get this problem under wraps, you you might have to go back to Volcker-era interest rates in order to actually solve this. Double-digit interest rates. Yeah, and and for, for those of you at home who are my age that weren't alive during the Volcker era— <laughs> That was not a fun time. <laughs> that was that was the height of the Jimmy Carter era in in terms of of you know just stagflation. I mean what what we're at currently is a situation where for so long the Fed has been pumping the markets with cheap credit and free money and low interest rates and they've created what we now call the everything bubble. And the problem was is that COVID hit, the bubble started to pop not because of of the problems within the bubble, but because of problems involving the shutdowns and yeah. everything with, with the um, with the virus, and now the Fed had a 
was basically presented with a choice. And the choice that they made in 2020 and in 2021 was keep inflating the bubble. But what that did was is that that created the, the inflationary crisis that we're now being hit. And so then the Fed had a choice of do we either pull back and thus crash the markets and pop the bubble or do we allow hyperinflation to destroy the middle class? And so basically what the Fed has now been presented with is a stagflation fork in the road where they can either choose between triggering a recession and a giant crash, which we're halfway into, or allow hyperinflation to basically destroy the middle class. And so far, the Fed has been choosing to go undergo what we would call quantitative tightening. Yeah. Um, in fact, it was right before this um, podcast began, the Bank of Canada just announced an emergency 1% interest rate hike, which was a quarter of a percent higher than what was expected in the markets up to our, our neighbor in the north. And the, the, there's now talk in the U.S. after the report that came out this morning that the Fed might have to actually raise rates even more than the 0.75% interest rate hike that, yeah. that the markets were expecting. But what's so funny is, is that if you go out to like another six months, eight months or so, the market's actually expecting interest rate cuts in, in 2021. Which so is nuts. It, it, the reason that they're doing that is because they know, they know that if the Fed keeps doing this, the markets are going to continue to crash if the fed raises rates for the rest of the year and actually does volcker style economics in order to quell this michael burry said it yeah uh said it best when he said we've already seen the 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 compression in market multiples which is that the bubble has now popped now the now the recession is going to kick in yeah the everything bubble is now collapsing, and 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 so that that was phase one. The second phase of what Burry said, and by the way, Burry was the guy who made millions and millions off of the two thousand eight crash because he saw it coming ahead of time. Yeah, that was phase one. Phase two is now going to be the compression of earnings multiples. So, you know, all these companies on the stock market were trading at super high value. You know, they were trading at like PE ratios of like two hundred or something yeah. like that, which is just insane. P so that's P coming down. PE, by the way, is price to earnings. So basically what it is is what, what the company's like valuated for, what they're predicted to be for versus what they're actually producing. Yes. Like in revenue. So and a healthy PE ratio is usually in like like 10 to 20. Yeah. And 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 so that's been coming down. That's the bubble popping. Yeah. But that that hasn't yet hit the actual incomes of these corporations. That is now coming through. And that's why you're seeing all mostly these like Silicon Valley tech companies that are like it's like every week oh, now they're, they're announcing a layoff, and laying off people. Yeah. Well, they, well, and this is again, let, let's. And, and the reason why we we need to explain this next part is because of what's coming. Um, because when you when you look at how they measure inflation, there, there's a couple different ways to do this, and we're gonna we're gonna go over some of the day, and and again. Please believe me when I tell you it is important for you to understand this because if you don't, people are going to manipulate. The government will continue to cook the books to try to make things look like they're not as bad as they are. And then it's this question of, well, then why is this happening? And it's because they're lying to you. And, and here's how. So if you look at the way that we typically measure inflation, it has to do with things like the, com the consumer price index. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics does the consumer price index. And they, they say, like right here in this article, it's an Investopedia. It's the most widely watched and used measure of U.S. inflation rate. Okay. It's also, you know, used to determine the real gross, uh, gross domestic product. 
And from an investor's perspective, the CPI as a proxy for inflation is a critical measure that can be used to estimate the total return on a nominal basis required for investors to meet their financial goals. Not really as important for what we're talking about right here. But here's where this gets in. This is where this gets interesting and the whole controversy. So they have something called the COGI or the COLI. And the way to think about this is, okay, I'm looking at the consumer price index because I want to I want to measure inflation. So here's the measure I'm going to use. Well, when you use COGI, what that is, it's an acronym for the cost of goods index. And so what they do is they take a, a particular basket of goods, right? So, and, and, you know, don't think of this as a basket at the grocery market. Just think of it as a, a bunch of consumer goods that are regularly, you know, purchased and consumed by Americans, you know, as part of their daily lives. Like staple goods. Staple goods, right? So I'm going to take a, a basket of those goods from last year. I'm going to take a basket this year. I'm going to compare the price increases. I'm going to account for other factors. Then that's going to give me an idea of your, your overall inflation rate, okay? So same loaf of bread here, same loaf of bread here, right? Same gallon of gas here, same gallon of gas here. All right. Then there's the cost of living, right? Cost of living index. So I'm going to read through this because this is important. Over the years, the methodology used to calculate the CPI, super price index, has undergone numerous revisions. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the changes removed biases that caused the CPI to overinstate the inflation rate. The new methodology takes into account in the quality of goods and substitution. The substitution, the change in purchases by consumers in response to price changes changes the relative weighting of the goods in the basket. The overall result tends to be a lower CPI. So here's what this means, okay? It used to be with the, now that's the, that's the cost of living and now that's the one they're using now. So it used to be exact same products and quantities, exact same products of quantities. Here's what happened. They said, well, no, 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 we don't, we don't want to just do the exact same goods and quantities because you know, people, people make changes. They do other things. They substitute. And, and as long as their cost of living is still the same, well, then, then that's okay. Then, and, and, you know, we're, we're going to take that into account. So here's what they've done. Here's your, here's your basket of goods that you were using. It got expensive. So you bought other things that were similar substitutes. Uh-huh. And they said, well, no, 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 you still have access to the bread or you still have access to this. Cons- it's just this version of it now. So we're not going to count that. So you used oh, wow. to get steak, and now you get hamburger meat, right? You get hamburger helper. It's or or meat, you, right? you used to get 95% lean, and now you get 75% lean. Wow. So they can actually say, so even though you modified your decisions based off of the increased price, they're, no long, they're not counting that the same way they did because, well, you're still getting something. There's still something in There's the basket. There's still a protein source There's there. still something in the basket. Yeah, it, yeah, maybe you're eating crickets now, right? It's still a protein source. This is why this is such a manipulative process because you're absolutely right. People adjust their behavior and their spending habits in, in response to rising prices. But when they're doing it because you've inflated the currency and you've made things more expensive, like you've arbitrarily made things more expensive, right? That's not an accurate, you, and, and they, they adjust their spending habits. No, that's what you're trying to capture. You shouldn't be ignoring that. That's an indication that inflation is taking place. Do we have uh, any, uh, anything to show what you, it would using be? the, basically, if we use the same metrics from Carter's era, I where would we be? So, I am so glad you've asked that. 
So let's take a look. Now, John Williams, all right? And so again, just to recap real quick before we go into this next phase. So you have the consumer price index. That's what they use in order to track inflation. Okay. One method is the cost of goods index. That's a fixed cost of goods, same exact goods, same exact quantity, one year to the next year, all right? Or one period to the next period. Then they have the cost of living. That's where, well, you're still buying similar goods, but you're making other decisions, so we're not going to count that. Right, Rich, right off the bat, you should look at that and be like, "That's I'm skeptical of that reasoning. So now let's look at a couple other ways to monitor inflation. One is the good old-fashioned way, right? The cost of goods index. John Williams, an American economist and analyst of government reporting, prefers an inflation, inflation measure calculated using the original CPI methodology. So that's your basket of goods. Then there's another mechanism. That's David Ransom. He actually thinks that that's not even good enough. That basically that's a lagging indicator of when inflation is taking place. So what he does is, according to Ransom, increases in the price of commodities are a better indicator of the current inflation because inflation initially affects commodity prices, and it may take several years for this commodity inflation to work its way through an economy to be reflected in the CPI. So Ransom bases his inflation measure on a commodity basket of precious metals. Right. So basically what he's done is he said, all right, look, I want to find something that is a better indicator. That's not as la a lagging indicator as just a random group of goods. I want something that's almost immediately affected by inflationary you know, monetary policy and things like that. So so we have three different mechanisms right now. All right. Now, here's what we're going to do now. Uh, keep in mind this article. OK, um, the, what they chose to look at <laughs> is um, uh, 2006. So they basically took all the insanity out of what just happened over the last couple of years, and they looked at 2006 when things were a little bit more stable. So here's what's interesting about this. If you use the way the government is now monitoring inflation based off of numbers in 2006, the government said the inflation rate was 2.2%. Williams, the guy that was using the cost of goods, in, goods index, he said, no, 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 it was 5.3%. So that's, that's more than double. Ransom, the one saying that, no, 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 neither of those methods are the most accurate one. The most accurate one is, is the system I've come up with, 8.2%. That was 2006, people. Okay, so where are we now? According to Williams, so that's, that's that. the middle ground. According <laughs> to Williams, that's the middle ground, right? Government says we're at 9.1. Williams says we're at 16% inflation rate. What is the other guy Which saying? sounds about right, what considering... Is, what is we don't even have the numbers for what the other guy says at this point. I mean, it, it th think about it from this point of view. So the Fed's balance sheet. That's higher than Carter, right? It's sorry. A, that's, it's higher in the, than it's the, in the ballpark. Yeah, it's or in the ballpark. Or was Carter seven? No, 17 was, the, okay, sorry. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's in the ballpark, but um, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that inflation would be around like way north of 10% because keep in mind that the Fed's balance sheet increased by almost $5 trillion. Yeah. In the course of what, like a year and a half? It, it was or? like a 40, it was over a 40% increase in the number of like dollars just created out of thin air. And the and again, that's the balance sheet on the Fed um, within a two and a half year period. And, and that, that money directly flowed into the housing market and the stock market. And which is why you, you saw at the same time, I mean, just think about it, people. At the same time that the entire country was being shut down, the stock market was at an all-time high. Yeah. How how on earth does sense. that make any sense? Yeah. Was it were we making more stuff? Were we <laughs> hiring more people? No, we laid off like 16 million people in March 2020. Yeah. Like 
How on earth was the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 trading at an all-time high in the summer of 2020 and, and then going into March 20? Notice how it, 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 the, the stock market basically hit a peak at the very end of 2021, which, lo and behold, was right around the time that the Federal Reserve shut off or began to shut, because they didn't fully shut it off, but yeah. began to pull back from the money printers. It, it Here's the thing. Because this stuff is so complex and has so many mathematical formulas and metrics in here. So, like, here's an example. The CPI doesn't even measure shrinkflation, yeah. which is the idea that that when I go and I buy a, a box of Pringles or, a, a you know, a, a can of soda or yeah. some, you know, chocolate chip cookies, you know, before my Pringles, you know, I had 50 Pringles in there or 60 Pringles in there, and now there's only 40. Or before I bought a 16-ounce can of soda and now it's only 12. Or I bought a 12-ounce can of soda and now it's only 8. Or before I bought, you know, a pack of, you know, 50 Chips Ahoy cookies and now there's only 45. And yet the price that I'm paying for those is exactly the same. Yeah, That is a hidden form of inflation that is completely missed from the uh, consumer price index. And it, uh, like I have seen this too because like the the boxes of cereal um, that I, I started buying, I noticed were, were smaller. Um, and so many other people are seeing this as well, but it's it's such a hidden thing because yeah. you're paying the same price, but there's literally less, you know, liquids in your soda or there's less cookies in your basket or there's less. Or they're using alternative ingredients that aren't as they're good. They're using cheaper ingredients. Yeah. Another thing, too, is that they'll, they'll add more preservatives to something yep. to keep it, you know, fresher longer. Um, but in doing so, we'll lower the quality of the good. Like these are things that are impossible to calculate under the current CPI. Um the other thing, too, is that the CPI, as you, you mentioned, um, you know, takes into account things like substitution. And so you're not maintaining your current cost of, of, of living, your current quality of life. The CPI basically assumes straight out of the gate that you are going to accept a worse quality of life in order to maintain your current spending habits. Yeah. And so you're going to buy worse off goods, cheaper goods, you're, you're, or, or, or you're going to purchase things that are of poor quality in order to keep your spending habits the same way. If you try to keep your cost of living, your quality of life the same way, th then that's where you get that huge disconnect where the actual inflation rate is substantially higher when the, when the government says. And you know the easiest way to prove this? Go to the grocery store and ask yourself if the stuff that you bought is 9.1% more expensive <laughs> than it was two years ago yeah. or a year ago. That. Yeah. It's a lot I more I guarantee than that. you yeah. it's a lot more than 9.1%. When I go and buy something, I guarantee you it's a whole lot. Like the average person notices this. When they go to the gas station or they go to the grocery store, they know that they're not paying 9.1% more. They're paying 20% more. Yeah. And, and, and but the problem is, is that the government can get away with this because the average person, to their credit, doesn't have the time to sit down and pour over a bunch of white papers and do a bunch of back of the napkin math in order to calculate really how much more they're paying per month for stock. Well, and, and then the and the other thing that comes out here uh, that gets demonstrated by all of this is people also don't want to believe, uh, not all people, right? And, and I think most people in general, they don't want to believe that they're being lied to by the very officials that they pay the salaries for through their tax dollars. They, they People want to believe, and this is not a bad inclination necessarily, but they want to believe that, no, no, generally speaking, you are trying to tell me the truth. You might have a different perspective on it, but you're, you're, not, you're not outright lying to me. 
But when I look at something like this, where, where you, you manipulate the data in such a way to where it makes it so easy for you to lie to me, I have to wonder, now I have to start wondering, what is your incentive structure? Is your incentive structure to tell me the truth even when it's difficult to tell me the truth? Or is your incentive structure to tell me what you think I might want to hear in order to justify your reelection chances? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, you raise an interesting point, and that is that I, I feel like the government, the uh, government officials tend to demonize your fellow man. So demonize all your, all the people who own the businesses and things like that. It's so they're, they're just saying, trust us, hate them. Yeah. And, and so they constantly engage in this pitting people against each other because they don't want to have to pay the price for their bad policies. I mean, they are constantly learning the wrong lesson from history. I mean, so what lesson did they learn? Oh, here's what they learned. Uh, this didn't really work this way. So let's just change the metrics. Yeah. Let's just cook the books. We didn't cook the books well enough last time. That's the lesson they learned. Yeah. Well, and, and here's what's interesting. Let's go ahead and go to this next point. Because this is another reason why, you know, again, for what Christian said, it's, it's absolutely true. Not everyone has the time to be able to go through and like look at the different mechanisms for determining the, the consumer price index, right? Or, or how the government change it. But this is the other reason why I think a lot of people, they're, you know, it's funny, they, the left talks about, you know, woke. I think a lot of people are waking up to a, a certain reality right now. Um, not that they didn't sense it was there or understood that it could potentially be there, but because they didn't realize how bad it was and how blatant things could get. So Christian actually put this together um, or found it or whatnot, but it was, here's a series of articles from, from major outlets, right? These are not like one-off little, you know, blogs or something like that. Major outlets, Washington Post, Republicans are scaremongering about inflation to derail the Democratic agenda, right? This was, I think, 2001. Then after that, um, no, no, the, no, 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 you mean 2021, two, sorry, 2021, <laughs> 2021, Washington Post, Republicans are scaremongering about inflation to derail the Democratic agenda. Then we moved to May 2021. The inflation scare doesn't match reality. Then we go down to CNBC. Inflation looks bad now, but it's pretty much sticking to the script. Then we go to MSNBC. Why the inflation we're seeing now is a good thing. And then finally, what causes a recession? Maybe it's you and how grumpy you are about the economy. <laughs> this is the sort of thing where people are looking at it now and where, where I think a lot of people, a lot of voters were willing to say, look, I might not always agree with this party or that party or that official or that official, but I genuinely, generally believe that they're not like flat out lying to me. And the reason why I don't believe that is because, well, all of the different cultural institutions within academia, within the media, within pop culture, they're, they're reinforcing this particular narrative. So there, mu there must be something to it. And then they see something like this, and, and you're not going to see this all in one clip like we've got it here, right? You're going to see article after article over several months from outlets that you're told that you should trust, that you're told are intellectually rigorous with respect to the way they report, the way they analyze and everything else. And then you look at it all together and you're like, oh my gosh, like, yes. He's been lied to. So the question is, so the question is, why are they doing it? And the most immediate response, the most, the most obvious response is, well, you either have people with a particular ideological or economic agenda. And when it comes to politicians, they just want to get reelected, right? They don't want to be blamed for something going bad on their watch. And so, of course, they're going to do it. And here's what, I'm, here's what I am here to tell you. That is only half true. 
Really? That is only half true. Yes. Joe Biden, the Democrats right now, they don't want to get blamed for what's going on within the economy. So it's the Putin price hike, right? It's evil corporations. It's everything but them. So what's the real crux but, of but this? But here's what's interesting. Here's what is really interesting. If the Democrats really wanted to, to explain how they should not be blamed for all of what's going on right now, they would point to the Fed printing out all of this money during the Trump administration. And they would point to speeches Donald Trump gave encouraging the Fed to keep interest rates low. They would point to that. They would say, wait a second. Hey, Republicans, you want to talk about inflation? All right, let's look at when most of this money printing took place over the last three to four years. Let's, let's look at that. Why aren't they doing that? Because this isn't just about trying to protect re-election chances. This is about them protecting a particular mechanism that they want control over. And that has to do with controlling the money supply. And if the moment they come out and actually admit what's going on here, they realize that they're actually losing something that is far more valuable to them than a midterm election. And that is having this amount of control over the economy. They also see it. Here's the bonus, the bonus feature. On the politically ideological side, when you read what is being said at the World Economic Forum, when you read what is being said by people like Klaus Schwab, when you read what is being done by organizations like BlackRock, what you see time and time again is they see this as a historic opportunity for them to drastically change the way people think about the economy, about the environment, and about their relation to government. And they are not about to lose that opportunity. We were chatting before the episode, and I found it so interesting, one of the points that you made about uh, the money being printed and the process it went through to get to the individual buyer of those products and services. But I, what I found so interesting was is that when the money's printed, printed, just like you said earlier, the government and the banks have access to it first. So when they spend that money or loan that money out, they're loaning it out at full value. Oh, it, But by the time it gets down to us— when we're at the grocery store, we actually have to, you know, go through the consequences of a dollar that is less valuable. So it, it's it's fascinating to me that a lot of times on the left, you'll see that they have this graph that they like to show. And it has to go with like rising wages versus um, kind of like corporate profits and, and all these other things. And they'd say, oh, my gosh, look, there's been this major departure. Right. Um, and, and they'll usually chalk it up to the 80s, but it actually started before that, where wages were not going up at the same rate that like, you know, high level corporate salaries were and things of that nature. And they always chalk it up to, well, this is because of Reaganomics, or this is because of, of unfettered capitalism, or this is because, you know, we lowered the tax rate on, on the wealthiest Americans. Okay. No, that that's, I'm sorry. None of those explain it because one, it started before all of it started before Reaganomics. It also doesn't explain it because the wealthy pay a higher percentage in, in, taxes, right. um, a significantly higher percentage in, in taxes. Um, even when they point to higher tax rates, like maybe in the 50s and 60s, there were so many loopholes that nobody was effectively paying that tax rate. Mm -hmm. So none of, what they, none of what they're pointing to is actually explaining it. But here's one thing that, that really does what was significant, and it was Richard Nixon, right? It was Richard Nixon that completely removed us from any vestige of the gold standard. And what that essentially did was that it created an environment now where when it came to printing money in the United States, there used to be consequences beyond just inflation to printing that money because it was tied to something that was tangible. Mm -hmm. Gold. And, and, and that reflected 
you know, other things within the marketplace. It provided limiting, it provided a limiting principle or a limiting power with respect to what the Fed could do. When we removed from that, gone, gone. And you saw Republicans and Democrats engaging in inflationary monetary policy, usually to save their skins within a particular time period. So again, this is what is so telling about this is that if, if the Biden administration really wanted to hammer Republicans right now, he's got a perfect mechanism to do it, except that he doesn't, well, because everybody wants the power to be able to kind of pull that money lever. So there's a couple of different terms for folks who believe in different monetary. Uh, Let me, let me start one thing because I I forgot, I totally forgot to do this. I apologize, but you're right. And and this has to do with what the, the point you initially made was, well, when this money is all printed, it doesn't, it's not as if inflation is automatically recognized the moment you print, right. you know, $2 trillion, $3 trillion, right? That money, it gets printed and then where does it go? Well, it goes on the Fed's balance sheet or it goes into banks or the government uses it to spend it. Well, you print all this money and then the government spends it. The government sends you a $1,400 check or the government spends it on infrastructure projects or whatever it is. When that money initially went out and got spent, it got spent with a certain value attached to it. It's when the money starts going out in the economy and circulating, and then all of a sudden people realize that there's more dollars, but there's the same amount of goods, or in the case of COVID and whatnot, there's fewer goods because you've shut down all of these companies. Well, now there's more dollars are required to buy the same amount of goods. That's inflation, right? That's right. that monetary component. But when it was whoever spends it first. Which is the government. Right? Whoever spends it first, they're getting a much higher value for those dollars spent than you are by the time it's coming down to you. Or by the time it, it's had a chance to circulate within the economy, and and now uh, the price of goods and services is reflected by that. Well, this is why they call it a hidden tax. I yes. mean, it's it's a tax on the back end that you have no idea you're paying. It's a hidden tax. It's, it's also basically theft. They, yeah, and they also well, call that's yeah. taxation too. <laughs> taxation. <laughs> they, they are. They're stealing the value of your dollar, and they're they're punishing you for saving money. And other people ask, like, why does the stock market usually do well in an inflationary economy? If I put my money in the bank or if I or if I save my money and the interest rate I get at the bank is, you know, 1 percent, but inflation is nine point one. Well, then my money sitting in the bank is losing value the the more when I don't spend it. So I've got to do one of two things. I've got to either buy stuff. Right. Or if I'm an investor, I got to put it into appreciating assets. This is why. The, I mean, the Austrian business cycle talks about this, but this is why cheap credit and low interest rates fuel market bubbles. Because what happens is, is that as an investor, you basically are, are presented an opportunity to, at a much cheaper cost than normal, right? You know, let's say that, that interest rates are effectively zero. Well, you can just load up on margin debt and buy a whole bunch of shares of, of companies, you know, on the NASDAQ or the S&P 500. And what it what it does is, is that it creates a market bubble because people are trying, like, like investors are trying to find a, a place to put their money where they're not going to lose it. Because if you're putting your money in bonds yeah. and you're getting 1% interest on those bonds, but the inflation rate, even if the inflation rate's 2%, yeah. you're going to be losing money in the long run. And so- there's only one place for you to put your money and that's that's in investments. And so what it does is is that it creates a perverse incentive to basically force people to try to find anything that they could put their money into where they can make more out of it than than what the inflation rate is, even if the inflation rate's relatively low. Yeah. And 
that's why I said earlier that that the only way that you can really solve this is if you raise interest rates to a level that is going to be unacceptable for Wall Street. Well, and, and this is this is the other reason. And, and again, the Austrians do a great job of explaining this whole concept of interest rates. Why do you have interest rates? Well, when the interest rate is arbitrarily set by the government, right? It, it's what the government says it is because they said it. And, and if you don't think the government, I mean, Everyone wants to believe that they go through these like really, really important calculations to make all this. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. When FDR outlawed gold, like before he did that, owning gold, he was setting the price, he was literally setting the price of gold based off of his lucky numbers. Like this is documented. This is not me making this crap up. This is documented. Right. So this idea that if you honestly believe that government agencies and bureaucracies are always using just, gosh, the, the, the most expert advice and the most logical and critical of analysis, sometimes yes, sometimes no. How do you know the difference? Yeah, you don't until it's too late, usually. Talk about learning the wrong lessons. I mean, think about how much FDR is held up like he saved us. Yeah. Oh, he saved us from the Great Depression. No, he caused it. He caused no. It. And, and if, if you start talking about some of the policies he implemented and, and some of the crackdowns he, he uh, headed up, I mean, people would be shocked to find these things out because oh, it's yeah. not taught in school. No. Well, and, and this is where it goes into the whole idea of, the, you know, again, the Austrian theory of the business cycle and looking at interest rates. Interest rates are real things, right? Like, I, I want to look at some of my colleagues in the General Assembly. I'm like, you realize that aren't, these aren't just arbitrary numbers that the Fed creates out of thin air. When, when when interest rates are high um, in, in, a, in a private sector, in like the free market, that's, that's usually a bank saying that, okay, I don't have a lot of money to loan out, right? People are not saving. They're not saving in anticipation of future purchasing or future expenditures. So they don't have as much to save. They're spending what they got, right? So interest rates are high because I don't got a lot of money to loan you. And if I'm going to loan it to you, then, you know, there, there's going to be a cost associated with that. Now, when people are saving a lot of money, there's more money in the bank. Banks make money off of loaning that money, at least in a fractional reserve system. And so interest rates go down because now they want to encourage people to actually invest in things. And that's good for two reasons. One, because the interest rate is being set by the, the overall rate of savings, people should take out loans in order to invest in capital projects and larger projects because there's going to be future spending involved, right? Eventually I'm going to take that money out of savings. Or I'm going to take that money out of it and I'm going to buy things with it. And if you're on the production side, you want to be able to build something that's more expensive at a lower interest rate in anticipation of that future consumer demand. But if this is just, well, the fed wants to make the economy go faster. So we're going to lower interest rates even though that's not reflected either by increased productivity or increased savings in the marketplace, you're, of course you're creating a bubble because now people are taking out loans to buy large projects and large capital projects that they shouldn't be doing because there is no future demand that's going to require that, at least not at the level they're anticipating. So again, it's a government manipulation of the economy that actually leads to major problems uh, in the future and, and um, basically it leads to waste because people end up buying things and building things that they shouldn't be buying or building. Or investing in, you know, horrible cryptocurrencies. Well, that, <laughs> and, I, and, and actually, I mean, I, I say this, but like long term, I, I, we'll see what happens to to you know things like gold, silver, s more stable forms of cryptocurrency. Because I feel like that people are just, we've seen a trend line of people losing faith in government institutions. Maybe it's about time people lose faith in the Federal Reserve. Oh yes. Um, by the way, somebody um just did the 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 math. 
using the 1980s uh, metric to measure inflation, the one that we actually had during the Carter administration, yeah. um, using the reports that came out this morning, um, inflation is is at 18 percent now. Um, so it, it, it was 16. So that means it was 16 percent before. In, it's now so 16 in like April. It was 16 in April. If you don't cook the books. If you use what if you if you use what Carter had to use basically right yeah. you're you're at eighteen percent inflation, which company. makes sense because that's that's closer to what you're paying at the grocery store, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and at the gas pump and and everywhere else yeah. because again, like I said earlier, I I'm not paying nine percent more for for the same stuff that I was buying a year or two ago, yeah, and and by the way, that's an eighteen percent increase. In a 12-month period. Yeah. This began two years ago. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I I mean, everybody's quality of, I don't care where you live in this country, yeah. everybody's quality of life, I feel like, is substantially worse than it was two years ago. Substantially in many, many respects. And it's, it's incredible that there's still seemingly half this country that thinks that the solution to this is just we need to give more power to the yeah. federal government or to Washington, D.C. I, yeah. I don't know. There's this quote from F.A. Hayek about how, you know, many people will refuse to believe until the facts are laid bare. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really starting to think that, they you know, we, we just had a, a New York Times Siena poll that came out that has Joe Biden's approval rating at 33 percent. I don't know what can be done to convince that remaining third of this country that the the current guys running the ship are not capable of doing it. Christian, never underestimate the people's need to be soothed and and told that everything's going to be okay. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm that's sure. what the, what's driving this is that no one wants to hear the hard truth. We live in a society right now where people don't even want to be told the truth about biology. I mean, the truth literally is dead in this society at this point. I mean, tr- real truth. I mean, you've got a, a report that just came out last month saying that around 64% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck right now. And that doesn't even account for all the people on fixed incomes. And you talk about the people that are going to get hard, hit hard. And it's you've got people that... They are depending on social security or whatnot, and and they're not they're not able to make their dollar go as far as at all, and they don't have a means to create more money. Well, what one of and, and, and the bottom line is one of two things is going to happen from all of this, Be, because like you said, like the the lesson that the government learned from this is oh, just cook the books, right? Change the way that you calculate right. something, and then we can protect ourselves and we can protect the mechanism that we're currently using, and we'll do better next time. Um, the other lesson that you can potentially learn from this is this doesn't work. And that begs the question, what does work? So here's what has been so amazing about the American experiment, and and specifically the economic side of the American experiment. Because there's so much emphasis now within our schools and within our education about democracy, democracy, democracy. Okay, so really the only unique thing about America is that we get to vote for our leaders. I got news for you. That's been going on for centuries, and a lot of other people have done it. A lot of other cultures have done it. A lot of our societies have done it. They haven't experienced what we've experienced in the United States. The economic freedom is one of the things that has been the most unique about the American experiment. Right? It's not just this idea of, oh, I get to vote for my leaders. That'll be better. You can vote for crappy leaders. We do it all the time. The question is, is what are the limitations on the government government power to intervene 
in all of the decisions that are far more important to your day-to-day life than who happens to be your congressperson. And the, the reality is this. In a free market economy, there will still be malinvestment. In a free market economy, there will still be people that get fired. There will still be people that are unemployed. There will still... That is not a result of free markets. That's a result of reality, the reality of scarcity within society, the reality of the fallibility of human beings. But when you have a system that allows for the maximum amount of you know, freedom to act, freedom to adjust, when you have that, you can respond to malinvestment. You can respond to a pandemic. You can respond to crises that they take place because you're literally saying instead of putting all of the decisions in the hands of a few experts in a faraway capital, we're going to put decisions in the hands of millions of highly creative and productive people to be able to make adjustments based off of their individual needs. We're not going to treat people like their numbers on an Excel spreadsheet to be manipulated by government experts. We're going to recognize the uniqueness, the creativity, the ability to adapt, overcome, and respond to challenges in an effective way that doesn't just benefit them, but benefits their family and their community. We're going to recognize the value in that, and we're going to unleash it. And the only way we can do that is that if we're not constantly looking over our shoulder in anticipation of another government edict coming down that limits what we can do and can't do. If we learn that lesson, then yes, we can come back stronger than ever. But if, if the lesson that we've learned is that we want to be soothed, we want to be told it's going to be okay and there's not going to be any pain associated with it as long as you vote for the right people, this is going to get worse. And as Christian quoted somebody once, I can't remember who it was, like, you can ignore reality. You cannot ignore the results from ignoring reality. Yeah, that's right. And no matter what they're telling you about how they can make this better for you, eventually the chickens come home to roost. And everybody will be affected by it. And there's no government law. There's no you know, new regulation that they can create. No matter how nice it sounds, they're going to absolve anybody of that. But the good news is we don't got to be afraid of reality. We do need the freedom to be able to react to it appropriately. How yeah. do we get that? That's the question. This is a really depressing episode. And I feel like a lot of people probably are going to walk away feeling so hopeless on it. Um, So, so, but, but the question is, um, what are the ways that now the answer to this is going to be different for people in the city versus people in rural areas. It is. But what, what ways can we ease the pain of this as we go through what is probably a necessary painful time. I, here's what I think would be would be fascinating. And I'm I'm actually I'm actually drafting legislation about this. When it comes to supply chain issues, when it comes to people getting basic needs like food and, and things of that nature. We all know that what, one of the one of the reasons why we have like massive industrial um, like farming and things like that is because it reduces the overall cost. But that's not the only way to get it, and especially when you have major supply chain issues. Uh, that are due to either regulations or things of that nature, um, that increases the cost of e- even food that might have been cheaper to produce or whatnot, or, or may, may not be as healthy but is cheaper to mass produce. Again, I, there's a balancing act that naturally plays out within the economy where we say, okay, this is the, this is the best type of food that we could get, but you know, we have to be able to get people a sufficient amount of food to be able to sustain themselves and their families. And everything. I would love to see regulations, especially when it comes to like these smaller farming 
Um, like Joel Salatin has done so much work on this within within here yeah. in Virginia. Um, I'm actually going to do a farm tour with him this Saturday. That I'm really excited about. Um, but reducing the sort of regulate regulatory burdens that they have, I think what you're going to see is more communities that come up with ways to be able to work around these supply chain issues and these regulations to be able to get people basic things that they need. I think you're going to see more instances of people engaging, and we've talked about this before, in black market transactions. And it's fascinating because people think black market and they think like heroin and AK-47s, yeah. right? No, one of the biggest items black on the black market, market potatoes. One of the biggest <laughs> one of the biggest items on the black market is baby formula. Right. And that was before we we saw this whole crisis that we had now with like one of the major plants getting you know shut down due to investigations. So I think we're going to see more instances of um, you know people that are are engaging in the marketplace and providing services that the government has traditionally made it difficult to enter or made it un unnecessarily burdensome um, because of all the forms you got to fill out or all the inspections you've got to. And, and again, it, it's always based off the, well, no, no, we're protecting the consumer. Okay. Maybe you are, and maybe you aren't, maybe you're protecting the consumer. Maybe you're protecting the business with a better lobbyist. You know, I, I don't know. Both things can be true, but I, I think what we're going to start to see is more people engaging in that sort of economy, that sort of environment where it's like, you know what? There is nothing wrong with me buying a side of beef from my neighbor that hasn't gone through a federally approved, you know, processing plant. I don't see anything morally wrong with that. And if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. And if it means I can do it cheaper or if it means I don't have to wait, then I'm going to do it. I don't got to, I shouldn't have to wait to do these other things. So food is just one example, but I think we're going to see it in, in other industries as well. I think we're going to see it with things within healthcare. I think we're going to see it within uh, education. And some of it's not Well, just, it's all these burdensome regulations. When COVID hit, there were regulations that the, that governor Northam had to suspend yeah in order to allow more people to provide medicine. Right yeah. now, there is a doctor shortage that we're not really talking about. There's a shortage of doctors. Yeah. I know as soon as Obamacare went into place, I we could not find a, a family care provider to save our lives. Yeah. I mean, it was insane. So many, so much scarcity was caused by the government. Yeah. I, and, I, think, I think in rural, the other thing too that I think will be fascinating to see is that, one of the big things that we've learned is that the, the government talks about safety nets. It does a really bad job of providing yeah. them. What, what the government does a decent, halfway decent job of doing is stealing from one person and giving it to another right. person based off of, you know, well, how, because how they, they want to create how dependency they want elections, on themselves. How they want elections to turn out. Yeah. But I'll tell you what does do a really good job of coming together and helping people when they find themselves in difficult times. Families. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Families. Uh, church communities, religious communities, civic organizations. Most people don't realize they used to get their health insurance through the like things like the Rotary. Um, I think you're going to see more civic organizations coming up where you have people that ha are communities of interest. And I don't mean communities of interest to go affect legislation. I mean, we all live in this city. We, we, we go to church, right? Within that church, we have a life group. Within that life group, there, there is a unwritten rule, but it's, it's an often talked about rule that nobody in our life group is going hungry. Nobody in our life group is going homeless. Nobody in our life group is going bankrupt because of a medical bill. Like we will provide that, we will provide that yeah. additional support in the mechanisms that we can. And, and nobody in that life group is wealthy. None of us. Mm -mm. But we all have different things that we've, we've developed and different skill sets that we have and different ways that we can come alongside and support one another in times of difficulty. And you want to talk about building real community? I will tell you right now, if you are waiting for the government to build your community, they're never going to do it. Right. Because they don't have an incentive to do it. They have an incentive for you to be dependent on them, nobody else. 
But if you want to see real community, then you watch what happens with those charitable instincts that we have yeah. within those civic organizations, whether it be you know a family organization, a church organization, a civic organization. The thing I'm excited for is watching people finally pull back the curtain on the government and realize, you know, Oz ain't there. But there is something that can be there. And that's those structures that have always existed that have been playing second fiddle to government bureaucracies for way too long. I want to paint a picture real quick, and I've been trying to get into this for a couple of minutes. I might be backing up a bit. But so those who believe in Keynesian economics, Biden, Powell, those who have run the Fed, Democrats, even Republicans, wish to continue inflationary monetary policy so that they can use printed money to prop up the programs, which they have told their constituents are important to, to keep the community together, to you know feed the poor. Is that correct? Do I have that correct? In part, yeah. Okay. So then they go through the inflationary process of printing the money, and then they give it to the rich people. They give it to banks. Yeah. Well, but here, but here's here's the part to remember, right? Well, here's look the part who's to donating. Here's the part to remember. Now, there's some people who be like, yeah, that's the problem. It's not that they, they printed all this money. It's that they gave it to the wrong people. Nope. Sure. It hurts either way. Okay. I got to keep <laughs> going through this, though. Yeah. So they give it to the rich people yeah. who then give it to real estate investors who then go out and build houses or purchase houses and raise the prices on houses. But they claim they want to you know, keep this inflationary monetary policy in place to protect the programs which prop up the less, you know, the, the, those who are poor. But then by the time the money gets into circulation and makes it down, its way down to those people, now their money is less valuable and the prices of goods that they're purchasing on a regular basis are higher. Yeah. This is why you have a poverty trap where it yeah. is, I, it, it, it can, you can end up falling in a cycle. I mean, you, you can end up falling in a cycle where you can't get out of it. Yeah. And, and, and you're relying on government aid and support when it's the government that is digging the hole for you. And, and even and so, so the whole idea was, is that, you know, the, the social safety net was supposed to be a springboard, not a, Right. Not a hammock, but it's not even a hammock. It's a pit. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not only that, notice how, like, all these metrics that are thrown out that you sometimes hear about, like, you know, oh, the, the cost of living or, or you know, real wages, like, like, whatever it is. And they're always like, those have been stagnant for 40 years. If you actually look at the charts, they all go back to 1971. Like, isn't that interesting? The same year we went off the gold standard, like completely. Yeah. We weren't even on a real good gold standard at that point. But the same year that we completely decoupled monetary policy from any sort of objective limitation on the ability to just print money, that's when all of a sudden we start to see these major problems and shifts. Mm -hmm. And think about it. Because like at the end of the day, there's only three ways any government at the federal level or at, at, at a sovereign level. So, so Virginia is not a sovereign state. We can't print our own currency, for example, which is also part of the reason that I think the EU is falling apart because a lot of EU countries, they don't have control over their own monetary policy. They all answer to Berlin or Brussels. But um, there's only three ways that a, that a government can end up bringing in revenues. They can either print the money, quantitative easing, they can borrow the money, or they can tax the money. So, we have not been raising taxes to the degree that would be unacceptable to people because the United States is, is, you know, we're resistant to government taxes. But to fund these programs and fund all of the government expenditures, you would need massive, massive European-style taxation, right. which is completely unacceptable and, and would honestly kill our economy. 
And so that's actually a good thing that we don't have massive tax rates. But if that's taken off the table, then what are the only two ways that you can end up funding government expenditures? Debt and inflation. You can you can borrow the money and you can print the money. Well, what happens when people no longer want to loan the money? Then you're in a real pit. You got to print it. You've got to yeah. print it. There's only there, there, we are rapidly moving in 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 a direct and, and and there's all these people that are like you know the MMT people. Oh well, you know we we don't need to worry about that. We can just print the money. They're literally advocating for just printing the money. Every single time, debt monetization has never ended well. I, I wonder, ever. I wonder if all these people who are advocating for printing the money have ever ran a business or a corporation. Of course or not. Anything. <laughs> well, oh, you know, you, if 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 business or you individually were to you know cook your books, you'd go out of business. Way, you'd go to jail. People get in trouble for pr- for for printing fake money all the time. Oh no! And you, you, and. You, I'm like, why isn't the why aren't the people at the Fed going to federal prison like like a lot of these other <laughs> oh, people because, that are creating well, money? They can be trusted. It, it, what, I, what I like is when like uh, so libertarians always point out that you know, hey, government has a monopoly on on aggressive violence. I'm like, and counterfeiting and cooking the books. Yes. What's the and phrase? Monopolization. There's a there's a phrase that there's there's three crimes that are federally listed crimes in the Constitution: counterfeiting, piracy, and treason. And the federal government commits all three. Yes, they do. Okay, I, I have to say this. Uh, just yesterday, my new license plate came in. Yeah, it did. My license plate says in the Fed. Well, it's nice. in Fed. Yeah. But you've never yes, been so hot, Fed. honey. Well, it, it, I thought it was perfect that we were doing this episode right after I had put those on my car. This is one of the reasons why I have this mug. Sure. It's not just right, it's the not wrap just, up. No, 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 uh, no, no. I'm going to finish this. <laughs> It's not just because she's pretty to look at, but when you had, get yourself a woman that has an in the Fed license plate on her car. <laughs> so many people don't know what it means. They're like, I don't understand. All right, let's let's wrap up here. But one question for you, Nick. Yeah. Summarize the argument that we need to be making right now. Because it to me, if I'm going to make this argument, I'm probably not going to go to Christian or a friend and say the Fed needs to stop pin- printing money. I want to go to Christian and I want to convince him that the government has been so bloated that it's created a mechanism that has almost made it impossible for them to not use this inflationary monetary policy and convince Christian that these programs don't need to be there. So here's what it comes down to. The first thing that to recap what we talked about before with the way that they've cooked the books on how they're looking at inflation, they have deliberately chosen a model that doesn't accurately reflect the pain you're feeling. Why would they do that? That's the most important question to ask at this point. Why would they deliberately choose a completely different calculation to hide the pain you're experiencing? Not them, you. Right. Right. Now, again, you could come up with the argument, well, it must be because they just want to get reelected. Okay, maybe. But why wouldn't they come out and say, hey, you know what? It was the last administration that did this with the Fed. We're going to fix it. Whenever somebody can easily point to the obvious cause of the problem and not be personally blamed for it. And they choose not to, it's because they want to maintain power or control over something. Okay. And the power of the control over the fed is the power to print money. And as we pointed out earlier, three ways that the government can, can raise funds because they don't produce goods and services for you that, that you voluntarily pay for. They can tax you, they can borrow it, or they can print it when they can't tax you anymore. When they can't get anybody to voluntarily loan them money, the one mechanism that they always have at their disposal is to print it. 
And the bottom line is that they can convince you that everything else is causing the problems, that it's your neighbor that's causing you the problems, not them. Then they can continue to get away with this. But there is no way government wants to relinquish control or even put necessary safeguards on their ability to open up the printing press and send you a check at the moment they need to, even if they know it's going to hurt you later. Because it provides two powerful things. One, yes, it does help them get reelected. But two, if you belong to this school that you honestly believe that the economy, that society in general needs a great reset, and you're going to be one of the people sitting at the big table deciding what that reset looks like and who the winners are and who the potential losers are, well, then you're not giving up one of the most powerful mechanisms you have to make that happen. All right. So... For those people out there, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, if you have a, a general mistrust of powerful entities and you want to follow the money, then follow it and follow it back to where it was printed in the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. and demand that we actually put safeguards on that to make sure that they cannot continue to do this. Should we audit the Fed? Is that something oh, you support? Yes. Okay. <laughs> at the very least, we At should the very abolish least. the, 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 pro- the real problem that we have here, the real problem that we have here is that this idea of a, a major central bank that has this kind of power is, is decidedly anti-free market. Okay. And I would even say it's anti-democratic. And so if you really want to move to a system where where we are not totally subject to a few powerful people making all these decisions for us, then you you can't rely on a central bank having this kind of power. Cool. All right. Well, this has been a... (laughs) I loved this episode. Yeah, this is like, we geek out about this stuff. Okay, I I shouldn't say, I love 18% inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the the bottom line is we hope this has been helpful for you in understanding the the topics that we've gone over today. You know, what is causing inflation, what inflation actually is right now, why the government's cooking the books. And again, some of the things that you can do about it in your personal life and definitely what you should be doing at the polls. So once again, thank you for joining us. Leave us comments, let us know how you think about this, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.